I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're happy to welcome back Professor Herrera to once again discuss the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its impact in Ukraine, Russia, and around the world. We first interviewed Professor Herrera back in April to discuss the initial stages of the invasion and the shockingly strong Ukrainian response. Much has happened since early spring, with both countries continuing to step up their efforts, from Ukraine continuing to mount a stronger defense than anyone expected, to the latest speech by Russian President Vladimir Putin calling up over 300,000 reservists to join the Russian army. Russia is also continuing to carry out fraudulent referendums as they seek to illegally annex parts of Ukraine. There's so much to talk about in this constantly evolving war and humanitarian crisis. So with that, let's jump right into the discussion. First of all, thank you so much for being here with us and coming back to talk to us more about what's going on in Ukraine. Thank you. Nice to be here. So our first question for you. In late September, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced plans to call up 300,000 reservists, specifically individuals who had prior military training. So our first question for you. In late September, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced plans to call up 300,000 reservists, specifically individuals who had prior military training. What exactly does this troop mobilization entail and how is it being taken in Russia? Well, it's a good question. It's technically a partial mobilization. That's what they're calling calling it. You may recall the war is not being called a war in Russia. It's called a special military operation. They said it was everything's going fine and they didn't need to have a mobilization of troops. Um, but the war is going badly for the Russian side. And there was a sense that they are going to need more troops and they didn't really have any choice. The mobilization was always somewhat risky for the government in Russia because it entails people actually showing up and being willing to fight in the war. And if the war isn't very popular, that's that's a risky move. So they called for, Putin called for a partial mobilization. And it's initially focused on people who had prior military service under certain ages. But it has resulted in pretty large exodus of people. If you think of how they may protest something, we can think of in political science, we have a framework of exit voice and loyalty. So you could protest the war you could show up and do your duty, or you could leave the country, and people are leaving in droves. There's estimates of between 200,000 and 700,000 people having left just in the last week. Wow, and where are they going? Well, that's another issue. Uh, They're mostly going to former Soviet states in Central Asia and the Caucasus. One of the reasons is that those are land borders that people can cross in many cases. Some European countries have not allowed Russians with tourist visas to enter anymore like Finland and Estonia. And so they could fly to Turkey um, or certain places, but flying has become expensive. And if you've been called up, then they'll certainly check your documents at the airport. So flying or taking trains is not a great option for people who are likely to have been called up or who think they're going to be called up. And so the land border crossing by car or by foot has been the one of the main routes. And so that's led to countries that are close by. Mm-hmm. Although I saw two people actually went to Alaska by boat and asked for asylum. Has Putin said anything about the mass exodus that's going on? 
No, and it's hard for them to comment on it because it sort of acknowledges that the war is unpopular and that this mobilization may not work. So the exodus is is sort of problematic, but on the other hand, you're having people who are against the war leave the country. So in terms of who's left, that leaves people who are really against the war not there. So they typically were not against dissidents leaving. Like they would have loved if Alexei Navalny, for example, who's currently in jail, if he had stayed out of the country, that would have been great. So they would like all the dissidents to leave. But this number of men of fighting age, that's not who they had in mind. Mm -hmm. And the other side of it, I should say, is that even for the people who have shown up, there's lots of videos now circulating of the training camps or training areas. So you show up for a mobilization and you get sent somewhere. And these are like open fields with people with backpacks, um, fire, you know, like open fires, like people eating food that they brought themselves, like getting no training, no uniforms, no money, nothing. Um, and there's a lot of disgruntlement of, among those people who are the people that were willing at least to show up. So how are the people in Ukraine, the leaders, troops, and civilians, how are they reacting to this news? And what might this mobilization end up meaning for Ukraine? Well, I think the Ukrainian side is focused on surviving, for one thing. I mean, people in the western part of the country are trying to live normal lives, um, even though they are threatened by bombs every so often, even in Kiev recently. Um, the people closer to the front and the military side of the Ukrainian operation, they're focused on winning back territory. So they've made huge gains in September and even in the, just the last week in taking back um, parts of Ukraine um, around the Kharkiv Oblast and now around Kherson. And you see news of these strategic cities like Liman, etc. So I think the Ukrainian military side is focused on their strategy, which is to um, disrupt supply and logistic lines by Russians, and then after they feel they've um, done enough of that to move their forces in. So I don't think they're focused on the mobilization per se, other than acknowledging that the same problems plaguing the Russian army fighting in Ukraine, which is namely low morale, bad management, incomprehensible planning, <laughs> or lack of planning, those same problems you can see in the way the mobilization is being carried out within Russia. But I don't think they're particularly focused on that so much. So do you think that this mobilization won't end up impacting much of Ukraine's uh, takeovers and takebacks of their territory? Well, even the pro-Russia people on TV in Russia and the, let's say, party of war, war hawks in Russia are saying at least two months to train those troops. On the Western side, lots of military analysts have said, that's not going to be enough. You can't change a whole culture. That was um, Mark Hurtling said that. You can't change the whole culture of the Russian army in two months. So two months is unlikely to produce a new, efficient, organized, high morale fighting force that they would need. Um, but even on the Russian side, they're acknowledging it will take some time. But the other thing I would say is that the normal strategy for the Putin regime is to lie about things, to manipulate data, etc. So that works for elections, for example, in the sham referenda to say 98% of the people voted in favor, 97, etc. But if they just lie about, oh, look at all these people signed up, that doesn't actually give them trained fighters to add to the war effort. So they can't really lie their way out of this by saying, 
yeah, the mobilization is going great. We got all the people we needed. I mean, they're certainly going to say that, but that's not going to produce the results that they need. So this is a somewhat different challenge for the regime because they actually need literal support of these hundreds of thousands of people to join the effort. Maybe in light of that, does Ukraine have more reason to be optimistic about these ongoing Russian attempts to take over the country than they did when the war began last spring? And what do you think the likelihood of Ukraine's survival looks like right now? Well, I thought, I mean, to be honest, I was wrong about the invasion because I thought that it would be a disaster for Russia and that Ukraine would win. I still think Ukraine would win, will win. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of military analysts, based on the constellation of forces by the Russians, predicted an invasion, but they also predicted a quick victory by by Russia. The Ukrainian side has always been totally motivated in the sense of an existential war. Like, if they do not win this war, they do not have a state and a nation. So the Ukrainian side has always been incredibly motivated. And they've also shown that in addition to just the moral sentiment and the motivation, they've also been effective at fighting alongside with Western support in terms of weaponry. But I think the Ukrainian side has been convinced of its victory for a long time, but they're even more convinced of the victory at this point. I think that given the way the war has been fought all these months, it doesn't, the, the, the possibility of a huge turnaround in the way that Russia operates seems more and more unlikely. And the strategy of Ukraine, as I said, of first targeting um, supplies and logistics and then moving in seems like they're going to continue that strategy all the way to the pre-2014 borders. So I think Ukrainians are optimistic about winning the war, but they're paying a price every single day with people being killed, with buildings being bombed. And so it's not exactly happy. I mean, you think you're going to win, but it's going to be very, very costly. When you look at the size of the cities, like if I'm not mistaken, I think Mariupol is 700,000 people. And you look at the level of destruction and you think of how many people could leave. Or Kharkiv is like over a million people. So when you have cities that are that big, how many people can leave a city? How many people, you know, some people it's easy to leave, but let's say half, let's say three quarters of the people evacuated. In Kharkiv or uh, let's just take a city of a million, or I think, I don't know that there's that many more cities of a million people besides Kharkiv, but if you have a city of that size and, and 75% of the people leave, that's still a lot of people left there. And there's issues of food, water, the people who don't leave tend to be in poor health or poor economically, so they don't have a lot of reserves of food, money, etc. So there's a lot of people. Ukraine is 44 million people. That's 15% of the territory. That's not obviously not exactly evenly spread out, but there's lots of people in those areas. So when you see the bombed out cities like Mariupol, you think there have to be lots of civilian casualties, even related to just somebody in their apartment that needed food or medical help that couldn't get out, not to mention people whose apartments were bombed or or people hit by shells. So I think the numbers are going to be staggering because of the high number of people living in in those areas. So what do you think the situation in Ukraine will look like even if they were to win the war? Well, I think first they're going to take back the territory. So there's going to be Ukrainian control of all of the former borders of Ukraine, that is the Donbass, eastern regions, and Crimea. I think that's one one thing, is that there's not going to be Russian troops there. Um, I think they're going to be forced to prepare for continued aggression from Russia as long as Putin or a Putin-type regime is in power. And I think that that's going to entail 
discussion, agreement, et cetera, with other European countries and NATO about how that defense is going to work. And then there's going to be, you know, a massive need to rebuild the country. I mean, one thing I said to my class is, if anybody ever did home repair, you know, you think of like, how much does it cost your household to say, redo a bathroom or, you know, build a porch? <laughs> so there's just massive amounts of buildings that need, how much does it cost to build a school? Like we have referenda in Madison for money for adding on to schools, etc. Like think of like all these like normal things on a massive scale. Like where's the money going to come from? On the plus side, I think that there is a lot of international support for Ukraine. And so they're going to get a lot of support, but it's going to be very costly on an individual and a state level for rebuilding. But I think Ukraine is going to become part of the European Union. I think the NATO question is still a question. But I mean, I think for Ukraine, it looks relatively clear. They're going to become part of Europe. It's going to be massively expensive to rebuild, but they are going to rebuild and they'll be a normal country. I think for Russia, it's a much less clear picture of what any path to a normal life is going to look like as long as the Putin regime is in power. Speaking of these people who are currently leaving or who have left Ukraine, do you think that after the war, these migrants will return back to Ukraine? Yeah, I think a lot of people will be interested in returning to Ukraine for a couple of reasons. I think people are going to return to Ukraine because they see the prospect of a future that is okay there. So there's a nationalist motivation, I think, that is part of it that, that Ukrainians have become united around the maintenance of a Ukrainian nation, a Ukrainian state, and an inclusive Ukrainian nation of different kinds of people. So I think that's one thing, but also I mean, you could be very in favor of, of your country, but then you see like, wow, like the country's still at war, there's no food, you know, my family isn't gonna be able to survive. So that may make you leave even though you're, you know, motivated by nationalism. But in, in the Ukraine case, I think that when the war ends, people will be motivated to come back and to, to try to help rebuild. I don't know if the same is the case for this Russian exodus, for example, because if you're leaving because of threat, from the regime. You're certainly not going to go back until the regime is gone. And in terms of the economic opportunities, that looks very dim right now for Russia. Speaking of the Russian lack of support for Putin right now, how are the Russian people reacting or protesting these decisions that the Russian government is making right now? Yeah, so this is a, this is a really big question. What do the Russian people think of the war? Uh, I just actually did a lecture on this last Wednesday in my class, looking at public opinion data. And the big problem is that the regime has cracked down on dissent very severely. They are arresting people for posts from five years ago on Facebook. They arrested a guy, or they searched the apartment just a couple days ago, this guy Spielkin, who was involved in the 2011 election fraud analysis of elections in 2011. So they're targeting all kinds of, of people. You're not allowed to say that the special military operation is a war. So in this context of both fear, new laws punishing dissent, when you have public opinion polls, I think any normal person who is remotely against the war or uncertain would not answer. And most of the public opinion polling agencies, the, the two big ones, Levada and Vizion, they no longer publish the non-response rate. So they no longer say how many people are not answering. Another company called Russian Field, they publish their non-response rates, and the non-response rates are between 90 and 95%. So they 
call 26,000 people and for every completed call that they make, 13,000 plus people do not answer. So you might say like, well, so what? You know, they got 1,600 responses and, you know, uh, our intro stats class says that's enough for a representative sample. But it's not if the people not answering are systematically anti-government. So to me, every public opinion poll has to be read in the context of most people are not replying and we know that the people unlikely to reply are people who don't support the regime. And hence, when we see the results that 60, 70, 80% of people support Putin or support the war, then we can be skeptical of how widespread a representative that support is. Another thing I think that's interesting that this Russian field agency did was they asked people, if Putin decided to end the war today, you know, what would you think? And if Putin decided to invade Kiev today, what would you think? And they get similar responses of totally different policies. Which, what does that mean? It could mean that people are just saying, basically whatever Putin wants to do is fine with me. If he says do this, okay. If he says do that, that's fine too. Well, that doesn't actually tell us the true support for the war, but it may suggest, you know, there's Putin support, but going back to the non-response rate, who else would be answering these surveys but Putin supporters? So I think that's just like a, it's a long answer to say it's very hard to know what the real sense of public opinion is because the regime has cracked down so much. But besides polls, we can look at actions. And that's where I think the mobilization is helpful in that the exodus of people certainly shows that there's a lot of people who are not in favor of the mobilization. So in terms of like, are Russians going to turn to protest? The other thing is the regime has spent 22 years systematically wiping out organizational infrastructure for protest. There was like a uptick in 2011, 2012, following some fraudulent elections. But since 2014, there's been more systematic use of violence against opponents and really targeting any kind of horizontal ties across society that would allow people to mobilize. So the infrastructure for protest has been pretty much decimated by the regime, which leaves the individual. And that's why the individual can say, I'm getting up and walking out of this country across the border, or I am going to do what I can, which is to not answer a poll, or to not vote, or to do something individually. But in terms of collective protest, it's a very negative situation. On the other side, in terms of splits within the elite, there's a lot of indications, especially in the last week, that there's a lot of infighting among different factions of the pro-war side of things with people in Ukraine, Russian officials who were in Ukraine, Kadyrov, the brutal dictator in Chechnya, um, and others criticizing the defense minister, Shoigu. So there's a lot of discussion now of like, to what extent is there infighting among the elite? The Washington Post had a story today that supposedly one insider had went to Putin and told him the truth. Okay, um, <laughs> it's a little late for that, but okay. Uh, but that's a, a sign of some elite dissent. I remember when we interviewed you last spring, we had asked you about Putin's advisors and whether it was true that they were lying to him, all those news stories that came out and you were saying, well, of course. <laughs> I think he picks people. I mean, it's a combination of things. Like one, you have your job because you are a loyalist. You are not a person who says like, hey boss, I think this isn't gonna work out. That kind of person doesn't get hired. So people who tend to agree with you are the people you hire. And then 
they don't necessarily change their mind about how to behave when things are going badly. They try to fix the situation, but at this point it's looking very dire for Russia in Ukraine, in my opinion. And so certainly the, the call for mobilization was a switch in policy and somebody had to have said this was necessary. So I think the, the people surrounding Putin, we would expect them to generally be loyal, to generally not bring him bad news. But on the other hand, this is threatening to the regime if things keep going the way that they are. And so like at some point, maybe people feel that they have to tell him something. Mm-hmm. Would you still categorize, knowing what we know now compared to last spring, would you still categorize Putin as a pretty irrational actor in this situation? I think that's a big question that we don't really fully know the answer to. And I think, for example, that gets to the issue of the nuclear weapons use. Mm -hmm. What would Putin do if the Russian army is not able to maintain control of that territory, which it looks increasingly unlikely? So would he just say, like, oh, well, this didn't work out, like, whatever, we'll try, we'll try again next year, and uh, retreat and leave it at that. Would he say, we need to use some kind of tactical nuclear weapons in order to stop the Ukrainian forces, um, so even though we're going to get pushed back from that, we're going to do that? Why would that be unlikely is that NATO and the U.S. have signaled that there would be a very strong response if any kind of nuclear weapon would be used, and most likely a conventional response. So if you were rational, you would say, well, if I were to use a nuclear weapon, I would see this massive conventional response from NATO, which would make it even less likely for us to win this war, and so I wouldn't do that. But there's a punitive aspect, too. I mean, Russia could pull back its troops and just decide that they lost, but they're going to punish Ukraine anyways. That would be not rational, because they would also get some kind of response. So it's just unclear how far the regime is willing to go. I mean, so far they've shown there's very little constraint on what they're willing to do. On the other hand, this also could be bluffing because there's no signal so far that Russia has changed its nuclear stance in terms of getting anything ready, like all the ways in which we monitor um, what they're doing with their nuclear weapons. Nothing has changed in that regard. And so that makes a lot of people say they're not actually preparing to uh, use a nuclear weapon, and that would be rational. So it's a little bit unclear what the information environment is for Putin, what he ultimately cares about. I think it's fair to say he cares about staying in power. And if it came down to capturing Ukraine, more Ukrainian territory, or maintaining power, I think he would choose to maintain power. But then it's a question, if they lose all this territory in this disastrous, humiliating war, would he still be able to maintain power. He still has a lot on his side in terms of just what he's set up there over the years. But I think that's a that's a question. So I don't I think the war was a massive mistake, a huge miscalculation. I think Putin has destroyed so much in Russia for decades to come. So it's just massively self-destructive for the country. But is he irrational to the point of literally being crazy? I I don't think we're we could say that just yet. Okay. I'm going to shift gears a little bit now back to something that you briefly touched on before, which are those referendums that were carried out in four parts of Ukraine a few weeks ago. So Putin has claimed that they're now Russian territory as a result of what the U.S. is calling a sham election that aims to take about 15% of Ukraine territory. As you said before, you don't think that Ukrainians really had a fair chance to say no to annexation? Yeah. So these, I don't know what you want to call them, uh, pseudo-referenda, sham referenda, fake votes, something like that. Um, They're fraudulent. 
so-called elections where supposedly 97 to 99% of people voted to become part of Russia. So we know that that percent of the population did not vote. A lot of people probably didn't vote at all. They just, I think I wouldn't be surprised if they just made up these numbers based on any range of maybe old Soviet playbooks because that's the percentage Soviet leaders used to win by. Okay, but why did they do it? I think part of it is a misguided attempt at legitimacy. So they wanted to claim that this is self-determination of these four regions, that Russia is not taking the territory, but rather these people in these regions wanted to be part of the country. Even that logic doesn't really make sense because we have international boundaries, um, and although Putin cites uh, UN charter, it doesn't work that you organize a referenda in another country. You, you fake the results and then you say, see, these people wanted to join our country. Now this is part of our country. So nobody, no other states have recognized the legitimacy of these referenda. And they're unlikely to because even semi-allies like China, for example, has absolutely zero interest in recognizing referenda and sovereignty of parts of a country's territory. China faces obvious threats in Tibet and Xinjiang to its rule, and that's the last thing it's going to do is say, let's have Kazakhstan organize a referenda in Xinjiang and ask if the Uyghurs want to be part of Kazakhstan instead of us, and then we'll, we'll recognize that. Like, no way. China's never going to go for that. And even countries like Serbia that have been Russian allies, they're not uh, recognizing it. So no one is recognizing these referenda. It was, I think, a weak, pathetic attempt at international legitimacy that I think anybody could have said, that is not going to work, that's a dumb idea. But they did that anyways. There could be other reasons why they did it. For example, tying the hands of other people in the government should something happen to Putin. Because before they could say, okay, there were these Nazis, these NATO-sponsored Nazis in Ukraine that were trying to take over Russia, but look, we got rid of them all, now we can go home and like back to normal, we've, you know, mission accomplished. But now, having said, these regions are now part of Russia, it's not easy to just pull the troops out and say, okay, everything was a success, great. So I think that may have been one of the strategies is to commit people in Russia to continuing the war because it's hard to, to change that now. On the plus side, something I think that's interesting is he's made these four regions equal in some ways to Crimea. So before, I think, at the beginning of the war, lots of people thought, well, Crimea is kind of different because Crimea was annexed, it became part of Russia, it has all this pro-Russian sentiment, so maybe we need to go back to the February 24th borders where Russia pulls out of everywhere except for Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea. Then we can have some peace. I'm not saying I advocated this, but some people might have said, let's return to the February 24th borders, reconsider Donetsk, Luhansk, but like Crimea is pretty much part of Russia. By putting these four regions together kind of on the same footing as Crimea, I think he's actually weakened the case for the February 24th borders and made a stronger case for the 2014 borders pre-Crimea, pre-Donbass war to say, this is all Ukrainian territory and you have to get out of all of it. No more consideration of some of these regions separately. So I actually think in some ways it, it may have backfired. People might have thought this would be popular in Russia. They had this concert supposedly to celebrate it, but then it turns out to be there's fake applause added into the video for the concert that they had. And like just a couple days after the supposed annexation, 
the press secretary, Dmitry Peskov, was asked, where are the borders of Russia? Because uh, this town of Lehman was taken and parts of these regions have been taken back. Peskov said, oh, well, we'll have to get back to you on that, which is, you know, kind of amazing that they no longer can say directly where their own borders are. So I think it's been kind of a mess for them. It hasn't worked out the way that they they thought it would. But there's certain other issues that brings up because um, they're going to force people in those regions to choose Russian citizenship or not. And I think that could have implications for people if they say no. Um, That could be a basis for prosecuting people. But possibly none of that's going to matter if if Ukraine takes back the territory. But if Ukraine doesn't, as it goes on, then I think those people in those regions are, are at great risk. Interesting. So do you think that once the war comes to an end, if Ukraine were to win, how do you think the territory would end up being divided up? Well, I think if Ukraine wins, those regions go back to being regions of of Ukraine. You know, Kherson, Zaporizhia, that's pretty easy. Donetsk, Luhansk, Crimea just goes back to being regions of Ukraine. But where I see some complications are, and actually there's certain parallels in other countries too, is the issue of punishing collaborators. So there's some interest in Ukraine in accountability, which is reasonable and makes sense. So you say, okay, accountability for war crimes, that makes sense. Okay, so what if you're one of the people in one of these regions who has um, taken over as a Russian governor or like a, a Russian appointed proxy, and you're overseeing prosecution, torture, arrest of Ukrainians who don't support the Russian side. Okay, so you could say, well, certainly you want to prosecute those people. Okay, but you go further to say, like, who are the people that would be prosecuted? And to me, one of the dangers is if citizens have to choose to either become citizens of Russia, since the territory has been now annexed, or they don't get this window of Russian citizenship and they're like a foreigner there, what's to stop Russia from deporting them, taking away their property, Etc. So it's going to be a hard choice, I think, for citizens there, especially citizens who are cut off from news and don't know what's happening. They don't know who's going to win. If you know which side is going to win, it's very easy. You just choose the winning side. But what if you don't know which side is going to win? Then you're faced with violence if you don't side with the Russian side. And then you end up being a person living in that region who chose Russia, and that could put you in big jeopardy. There is um, a subsequent Ukrainian victory. So I think the annexation and the citizenship choices that Russia is forcing on people is actually kind of dangerous. Maybe I'm overthinking it, and everyone's just going to ignore these kind of forced choices in this situation, and it won't be won't be a problem. But I think the annexation complicates matters for people living there in ways that we don't really fully understand. That could all be mitigated by Ukrainian victory in those areas, and you know won't have to worry about it. But I have some concerns about the people there and what's going to happen to them. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask about the Russian filtration centers in Ukraine, in which Ukrainians have been taken from their homes for ideological screenings and prolonged detentions. Could you talk a little bit about these filtration centers and how they work? Yeah, so these, to the extent there's proof of these existence of these places, not just in Ukraine, but in Russia, these are war crimes, period. The woman that's in charge of this program in Russia was just put on the U.S. sanctions list a couple weeks ago for her overseeing of this deportation of children into Russia. So these filtration centers are war crimes. But again, like they're an example of the difficult situation that people are in. 
you could be a citizen in this area and you're there for whatever reason, again, probably because you either don't have money and you couldn't relocate somewhere else, or you have like older family relatives or disabled family members that you couldn't leave, and that keeps you in the region. The Russians come in and the ideological screening, first of all, they're looking for men, they're looking for any sign of support for Ukraine, including tattoos and things like that, prior military service. We don't know a lot because the Russians are controlling that territory, but there's you know reports of men being detained, arrested, tortured, etc. But let's say you're not taken to a detention or torturous situation and you're in one of these filtration centers and they tell you, okay, well, it's either arrest here or we're putting you on a bus going into Russia. You might take the bus option because what if you have kids or you have other family or you're not going to just be killed and arrested and leave your other family members on their own. You could see why people would say, okay, whatever, I'll get on the bus even though I don't want to. But then you've made a choice, supposedly, to go into Russia, etc. I don't know what the true situation is for the filtration centers in Russia, how many people have been sent. That's certainly something that has to be looked into and accounted for, especially the, the children, especially as time goes by. It's a very sad and just disgusting, honestly, situation. So I think the filtration centers are part of this, you know, essentially genocidal campaign on the part of Russia to disrupt social ties and commitment to Ukraine in a kind of multifaceted way. So, and I think that's just something that people are going to have to follow up on as, as Ukraine liberates more territory and they're able to get more information from people about where people are and what happened to them. Do you think it's the same situation? There's those estimates that hundreds of thousands of children from Ukraine are being separated from their families and taken to Russia. Is that the same motive there, just the disruption of normal life and family ties, or is there something else going on there? It's hard to see a good motivation for it, right? It's hard to say, oh, I can see why you would take all these children and make them sing songs about Putin and make them say that Ukraine is a terrible place. I mean, what is the good motivation in that? Because even if they were providing relief to families or orphans, why wouldn't you do it in place? Why would you do it in Russia so far away? Why wouldn't you keep track of people? I think that the motivation, it's hard to see a good motivation other than a punitive one. And especially, I mean, we have statements by Russian officials talking about the way that when the kids first came, you know, they were crying and they were upset. But now they sing these pro-Putin songs and they're very happy. I mean, really disturbing. So, I mean, that's hard to see as not um, kind of re-education in the worst sense of the word. So I think the filtration centers are a big, big problem that needs to be investigated and has to be investigated as soon as possible, but also when the, when the war is over. Do you think that these filtration centers have actually also harmed Putin's reputation within Russia itself? No, um, because they're part of his propaganda that goes along with saying, Ukrainians are welcoming us, look what a good job we're doing. So I don't think that hurts him. I mean, it would hurt him among people who are critical of the war effort, but not among his supporters. Similarly, the pictures of atrocities in Bucha, etc., don't seem to have had such a negative effect on his supporters because they say on the one hand that those pictures or these kind of atrocities, A, they didn't occur, so that's just fake, fake news. B, if they did occur, the Ukrainians did that. 
So the same with the bombing of that theater in Mariupol where the kids were sheltering. They just either deny or they blame Ukrainians for these things. That seems to have been pretty consistent, but eventually they're going to get the sense that they're being lied to, hopefully. So despite the increased amount of intensity and overall action that Russia has taken in this war, it's still gone on worse and longer than Putin or anyone had really anticipated. Is there any chance that Putin may be overthrown because of this? Well, it kind of goes back to my earlier answer about the lack of collective capacity for collective action. Uh, okay, so a regime can be overthrown either by the elite or by the people. So a popular revolution uprising typically takes a couple of things. Uh, one is the opposition has to be unified. Now, this war presents an opportunity for unification, whereas previous protests, like protests against building an ugly building in St. Petersburg, or protests against police abusing driving privileges, or like there have been small-scale protests, protests against um, the COVID vaccine. There have been actions that Russians have taken against certain things, but it hasn't been all of society is unified against this. It's possible that this war presents an opportunity for disparate groups in society to say, yeah, we're all against this. So that's a possibility. But in terms of organization, you can't set up a Facebook or its equivalent group. You can't um, distribute flyers. You can't do a lot. I mean, you can use Telegram. That's one thing you can use. But everybody's at risk if they're doing any kind of organizational activity. So I still think likelihood of popular uprising remains low as long as they continue to use violence. However, a lot of the regime control depends on fear. And Navalny, Alexei Navalny, who's in prison, I mean, he said many times, look, people, come out. They can't arrest all of us. And that's true, but you don't want to be the person arrested necessarily, especially if you have people depending on you. So the regime relies on fear and a belief by everybody that this won't work and that they will just be subject to individual arrest or something like that. But that, that could dissipate. I mean, more and more people could be convinced that actually they can make a difference, they could do something. So I wouldn't say it's a zero chance. It's just that right now the regime is still in control in terms of the fear narrative and the use of violence. And that would have to change, I think, for people to be willing to risk more to act collectively. On the other hand, the other way in which the regime is overthrown is through some sort of coup or um, split within the elite, which is also more common in terms of like events around the world. Coups are more common these days than social revolutions. So a coup is possible, but then we go back to the fact that Putin has put in place people who are unlikely to oppose him, people like Dmitry Medvedev, who's like core personality is being a sycophant. He would have to have a complete change in his personality, his way of acting, and he's actually only gotten worse during the war. He's become even more just crazed and genocidal in his rhetoric, I think, to show loyalty to the regime. So could be there is a chance for some kind of coup given the splits within the elite, but it's not the most likely scenario either, but crisis could change things. I think that one of the reasons for not going nuclear is that people think that would be really wrong and potentially provoke some kind of split within the military or within the defense establishment who does not support a nuclear war with NATO or the US over this issue. 
So could be that the decision to go nuclear is provoking of a coup or something, and that would compel him to not to not take that route. But I think there are chances for the regime to end. But given the context of fear, it's very hard to predict when or how that how that would happen. Biden has had some pretty polarizing takes on this in the past couple days. Do you think that's just for his own political gain? Uh, no, I think that that is uh, Joe Biden kind of speaking honestly about the situation. Just like when he said previously, when he said, um, Putin has got to go. And then everybody said, oh my God, he's talking about regime change. No, that was just what popped into his head, which is what everybody thinks, that Putin is a disaster for the world. And as long as he's in power, he is a major threat to European security, even to American security. He is a huge, huge danger to the world. So I think Biden in that instance was just kind of saying what everybody thinks. Even though I'm not saying, oh, I support regime change in the sense of the Iraq or Afghan wars in terms of sending in U.S. troops. It's just a reflection of Putin is a really dangerous, um, untrustworthy actor. So on the nuclear side, I think that it's not um, the whole reason that NATO did not get involved immediately and come to Ukraine's aid and end the war, let's say, in a few days is precisely because of the seriousness with which they take the nuclear escalation. So from the very start, the U.S. and NATO wanted to support Ukraine, but were seriously concerned about escalation, and that's why NATO didn't get involved. That's why NATO provided assistance in a limited way and has kept doing that. That's why in the beginning part of the war, when people talked about protect our skies, which is an exact scenario for NATO engagement with Russia. Because when you say protect the skies, it means shoot down Russian planes and shoot at targets in Russia from which planes are launched, which means NATO engagement with Russian military. So NATO has been, I think, taking the nuclear threat very seriously from the very beginning, and they continue to do so. Um, So in that sense, we're not I would say Biden was not dismissing the the threat by Putin. Uh, so I guess I read it as it's a mistake to say, oh, t- don't worry about nuclear weapons. That doesn't, you know, he's never going to do that. Let's just forget about that. I think that would be um, irresponsible. You have to take the threat seriously. And um, the stakes are incredibly high for NATO engagement. And that's why it's so hard for NATO to figure out exactly how to support Ukraine in a way that doesn't um, lead to that. So that's what that's my interpretation is that um, that it's a very high danger. But you know, other nuclear experts will happily discuss the ways in which this current crisis is similar or different from the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I think there's a lot of differences. Um, but there are certain similarities, and I think that's what Biden was picking up on, in that we were not having serious conversations a year ago about if Russia were to use nuclear weapons, what kind of nuclear weapons would they use and where? I mean, we weren't having those kind of discussions. Or exactly what should the NATO response be to a nuclear strike by Russia? I mean, normal people were not dis- discussing that <laughs> just over coffee. So we are in a heightened state of threat in my opinion but um, I don't I still don't think 
a nuclear exchange is likely. I still think it's very low probability, um, but I do think everyone has to take it very seriously. And that has been what NATO has been doing. Mm-hmm. Is there a possibility here of like a Tom Clancy style assassination narrative happening? Or would it not even matter if it did because of the regime that Putin set up? I mean, a lot of people have said, you know, the best thing that could happen for Russia, actually people have said this for years, would be for Putin to die. That's like the most polite way to put it. Okay. Not that, it's his birthday today, by the way. Oh, how old is he? kind wow. of like 70, he just turned 70. Oh. Some people thought, oh, he's doing this war as like a birthday present to himself, uh, solidify his legacy, etc. Um, a lot of discussion of his potential health problems, etc. But I think... Despite everybody hoping in the West for health problems for him, maybe not the more nice, generous people, um, but despite discussion of that, it, he doesn't look at the moment to me like he's... We don't know what his situation is, but he's he's still alive for now. Uh, could he be assassinated? Well, you know, what about those long tables when he first announced the war? Like, what was that about? He's been shown closer to people lately, including those four leaders of the four, four um, uh, regions of Ukraine that he shook hands, the, the supposed leaders, his, his appointees in those places. Okay, so he was kind of like near them, so that, that suggested something. But um, I think he's pretty careful and probably, you know, takes the potential for assassination seriously. So, yeah, he could be assassinated, but I, I don't think it's particularly likely. One last bigger question for you. Last time that we talked to you last spring, we discussed sanctions a lot. I'm wondering, is there any updated evidence on how well the West's economic sanctions are working? And has the West remained consistent with sanctions in the past couple months? Yeah, the West has been consistent with sanctions. I think sanctions are having and are going to have a long-term, really significant negative impact on Russia. But there's two things that have happened more recently. One is that a lingering problem with the sanctions is that Russia gets a lot of its money from exporting oil and gas. And while Western Europe is a big consumer of gas and oil, and they have been trying to reduce their purchases somehow, like Germany, that, that's going to continue. So that's taking some time, but the reduction in purchases of gas and oil is taking time. Just recently, European leaders in the U.S. agreed to these caps on oil prices and then our ally Saudi Arabia just announced yesterday that OPEC plus is going to not go along with those they are going to cut production in order to make prices go even higher and so that's working against us quite directly and supporting Putin very directly so the the reason for the issue of production and prices is that the money is going into Russia so the money is helping to fund the war and reducing the funds going into Russia are necessary to reduce the Russian capacity for for fighting the war. But that's taking some time to figure out how to reduce the energy dependence on Russia. And if you just let prices rise, if you if you buy less but prices go up, it could cancel out the effects of buying less. If you buy less, prices should go down because there should be more availability. But if other countries cut production, that could boost prices again. So that's that's one of the problems. I think that's somewhat short to medium term in that the energy loophole needs to be addressed. But I think people are working on that. The other is um, ways in which China has helped Russia evade sanctions on things like microchips. And the U.S. just announced that they're going to crack down further on that. 
So I think the sanctions coalition has not wavered and it's only going to ramp up. And I think the oil and gas long term is going to be a problem for Russia because Europe is no longer going to go back to business as usual in terms of dependence on Russia. But there could still be more on sanctions. I still think more should be done on sanctions right now because it's a critical phase in the war. And so I personally would like to see more happen quickly. So I recognize that we've kept you here for a while. So as we wrap up here, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think we should? I guess I think the only thing that we haven't talked about that I think is one small question mark that I have is that so far in the course of the war, I think support for Ukraine has been bipartisan. Even though the United States is polarized, even though it's an election year, there's been both very strong Democrat and Republican support for Ukraine. Recently, I have seen some signs of partisanship creeping back in, in particular um, a Pew Research poll showing that people who identified as Republican or lean Republican were more likely to say we should be doing less for Ukraine. So like a little bit of a gap there. Some other partisan organizations, CPAC, um, Tucker Carlson, of course, like have been critical of Ukraine. So I think we have been lucky up until this point that this has been a nonpartisan issue, but I have a little bit of a question mark going forward of how long the bipartisan support will last in the U.S. and what would need to be done to, to shore that up, to not let it fall victim to polarized discourse and and things like that. So I guess that's something I think we need to watch out for in the U.S. But otherwise, yeah, I think we touched on a lot. And I guess I just think as a closing thing, you know, it's just incredibly uh, sad and really horrific time for people in Ukraine that are having to deal with the war on their own territory, with their own family, friends, relatives, etc. So, uh, yeah, so my heart goes out to them. The reality of a situation like this can definitely get lost in the news cycle. So thank you for that. That's all we have for today. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.